Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with me, Delia Delore. This is the podcast where we dissect popular mottos, mantras and metaphors, tracing their origins and finding how they translate to everyday life. Each week we have a special guest who resonates with their chosen expression. Every metaphor makes me think about a moment in my life. And because I travel a lot, I've learned many things about culture. And sometimes I've actually offended people without realizing. And then the worst thing about it is I realize it afterwards when it's too late to make amends or too late to say sorry. Our guest today did it much better than me, I'm glad to say. for this week is embracing culture leads to a wonderful life and that means we're back with Africa Yoon today to hear more about her journey of embracing Korean culture and how it changed her life. Before we speak to her our writers wanted to delve into a more serious topic than what we might be used to. I thought you should know that. If you're in Britain you'll know about how hot the topic of migration has been in recent years. If not, stay tuned to find out. In case you haven't heard, the UK is in the midst of overturning its anti-refugee legislator. It's no secret that this topic was a factor in the Brexit discussions with campaigns created intended to sway the public vote Most famously, the Breaking Point poster created by the political party UKIP. It depicted a queue of mostly non-white migrants and refugees with the title Breaking Point, the EU has failed us all. The image was taken on the border of Croatia and Slovenia. It received complaints as many were concerned that it incited racial hatred and that it echoed Nazi propaganda from the 30s. Here's Nigel Farage being interviewed about the image. Today, and it comes on the back of this, uh, this, this poster that, again, I say it doesn't have any white faces. It was about Syrian refugees. It had nothing well, to course. do well, with well, European well, migration. They weren't that, Polish or, or anything is. like that. But, but that is the crisis that has affected Europe over the course of the last well, 16 months. Well, how did it affect Britain? How many is, of those people got to Britain? Because Britain, you don't seem to understand, we are members of a political union. Despite the fact we're opted out, I'm pleased to say, of some bits of it, we're still a member of that union, and it's a union that's failing, and I don't want us to stay part of this failure. Yeah, but how many of those people free. in the poster made it to Britain? None. Uh, well. That is not what the poster was about. It, as I say, the EU has failed us all. You said what breaking point. Well, what I can... Well, the Schengen zone, with barriers going up everywhere, is, I think... We're not in Schengen. ...at breaking point. Brexit has, of course, since happened. The poster being a small but real influence on the final decision. The topic of refugees, however, are still on the nation's lips. Now, it isn't illegal to seek asylum. In fact, it's a human right. 
Being denied asylum isn't criminal either. These terms describe legal processes that need to take place for an individual, not so much their status. Home Secretary Priti Patel has recently proposed a Nationality and Borders Bill. This bill states that knowingly entering the country in an illegal way is a criminal offence. This doesn't bar an asylum seeker from entering, of course, but forces them instead to use a checkpoint. 16 years ago, Colbassia arrived in Britain after fleeing torture in his home country in Central Africa. He later helped create a support network for refugees like himself, receiving an award from Queen Elizabeth. His route here was precarious and, in the words of the government, illegal. When you're fleeing, when you're running and try to save your life, nothing is illegal. The most important thing for you is to find somewhere where you, you are safe, you are protected and you find sanctuary. And that was my case and that was the case of many, many, many people. It's people like him being targeted by the UK government's new plan for immigration. According to the British government, this bill will fix a currently broken system. It will speed up the admissions process whilst also preventing the risks that undocumented individuals pose to the public or the gangs that have trafficked them in. Critics, however, worry that this new legislature will add strain to an already overly bureaucratic and unjust system. Not only would each individual face more difficulties with further restrictions of rights, but this process adds the potential to create an unnecessary tier system. Migrants may be deemed worthy or unworthy depending on the way they entered the country. So, take the thousands of people who arrived in dinghies from France so far this year. How will this legislation, if it gets through, make it harder for them to claim asylum? The fact that they arrived by dinghy, could afford to pay a smuggler and travel through a third safe country to get here, could now count against them under this legislation. So let's imagine, for example, that someone arrived into Dover on a dinghy and successfully claimed for asylum. Under this bill, given the way they arrived illegally on a dinghy, they could be offered a sort of temporary protection status, which in effect would mean that they would be regularly assessed for removal thereafter. Brexit brought about the end of the Dublin Agreement for the UK. This European agreement obliged any asylum seeker identified by a national police force to apply for asylum in the country they were found in. If the individual were to leave and be identified in a different European nation, say Italy, then Italy would have the right to return the individual to the country they were first documented in. As the UK is outside of the EU, it is required to offer protection to all seeking asylum. This is where the potential of a two-class system could come into place, as some will have arrived legally whilst others illegally. But even after all the difficulties it takes for a refugee to enter the UK, arriving doesn't have the same effect as crossing the finish line after a 100-metre dash. It quite often takes years to be granted protection by the UK, which leaves the asylum seeker in a stateless limbo. Being unable to work in the country, they rely completely on the government, unless, of course, they have any savings left. The government provides accommodation and roughly £5 per day to every individual. However, with the new bill, those who arrive illegally will face further restrictions on their already limited rights. The way that we see refugees in the media has certainly painted a picture in our collective minds. Imagery in the newspapers show overpacked campsites or boats that look like they might sink under the collective weight of its passengers.
it's not often we actually meet each individual, learn more about who they are or where they come from. Human rights lawyer Sonia Skeets heads a non-profit called Freedom From Torture. She says asylum claims have been halved in recent years. They are very small numbers in the scheme of things, but there is a real sense of political panic which has been cultivated by the government for political ends. Last year, Britain was the fifth most attractive European destination for asylum seekers, with 45,000 applications, a long way behind Germany, France, Spain and Greece. In fact, we might not even consider that someone may have been a doctor or a teacher before they sought protection. Their lack of English and newfound poverty evokes a certain idea in the public's mind. And knowing of their reliance on aid can make this image worse. Though many don't realise asylum seekers are legally unable to work, with many very much wanting to. We don't even consider where the thousands of pounds to smuggle them across the borders may have even come from. Because this topic has been hotly debated all across Europe, a very special project which aims to challenge the public's thinking will soon be reaching British soils. On the 22nd of October, a puppet measuring three and a half metres high will be walking through London, venturing up north. Little Amal is a collaboration by theatre group Good Chance and the Handspring Puppet Company. The project aims to bring awareness and support the plight of refugees. Little Amal takes the form of a young Syrian girl, but she represents the thousands of unaccompanied minors out in the world, not only in the way she looks, but in the way she walks too. This giant artwork started her trip on the Turkey-Syria border in July and will finish her trip in Manchester in November. That's an 8,000 kilometres long journey. If you're interested in finding out more or contributing to the project, you can visit walkwithamal.org or look for Walk With Amal on all the big social platforms. That's A-M-A-L. And if you happen to be in the UK from the 22nd of October onwards, keep your eyes peeled for a tall little girl. If you're a metaphorically speaking veteran, the name Africa Yoon won't be too new to you. I had such a great time interviewing her that I couldn't possibly limit our chat to a single episode. If this is your first time joining us, make sure to check the link to the first part of our discussion in colourful.com or check out our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking. So without further ado, here's Africa Yoon on health, love and her new book. things I know my listeners will be aching to find out about is you started running, you start, you lost your weight. How knowledgeable were you about food before you began all your journeys? And what are the most important things that you've learned about the different types of food and how it affects your body? Right. I mean, I think I, I ate every, I ate basically almost every food around the world because I was a daughter of the United Nations. So I basically tasted almost it all. I didn't really eat unhealthfully until a certain period of my life. Um, before that, I really had tasted a lot of things. Um, what I learned is 
the power of, you know, plants and the power of food, of how it makes you feel, you know, that food really like carries a vibration. Like when I eat kimchi, because kimchi is alive, I mean, kimchi is literally like a live food, right? Um, I feel it in my body. I feel it in my toes. I feel it in my, you know, and I feel it make me alive. It's electric. It's an electric feeling. And eating foods that have a certain vibration leads you yourself, your, it leads your body to making different choices. Even just that if you eat something that gives you energy. I noticed that if you calm down when you're eating and if you pay attention and slow down, and this is a big thing in Korean culture. In other cultures, we can be a bit lively at the table. Uh, Korean culture, you're supposed to be a bit more quiet when you eat. When you're a bit more quiet when you eat, you can actually feel what's going on in your body when you're calm. You can notice if a food gives you energy or not, right? Um, so I've really, the biggest thing I've learned is that food, you should pay attention to what what you eat does to your body and how it makes you feel. And I think that being a little calmer and sitting down, I mean, we're like running around, we're like eating a burger while running to the, you know, I mean, this year, not so much, nobody's been running to the subway or whatever as much, but, and maybe that's not been not such a bad thing. Like just sit down and pay attention to what food makes you feel. Like when you eat it, do you feel sleepy? And it's different for everyone, but I pretty much can guarantee that fruits and vegetables are gonna give you a, a pretty high vibration. Um, I, I am, I'm not, I was, I went raw vegan cause I had to go there to like the full end of the spectrum to really like find, come, come find myself back to the middle which is where I eat about 80% plants and just about, you know, 10, 15% fish and then just some, a little meat. Um, it just really made, I just really learned to like slow down and pay attention to what I'm putting in my body and what it does and just like, listen, you don't even need to do like a thousand things. Just sit down and eat and see how does that food make you feel? Are you sluggish after? Are you energetic after? You should be energetic. Your food should give you energy. And for me, Korean food, because of the enormous amount of fruit, vegetables and fruits that I was able to eat and wide variety of foods, which affects my gut, which affected my gut health and helped me to, to, to get healthy. I noticed that I, I know now that I want my food to give me energy all the time. Yes. Now it's a good thing that you, you know that, and you understand that now because you've also had health scares. What happened and how did you overcome them? Well, you know, when I, at the beginning of the Korean, I talk about how I was like depressed and all these things, but I didn't go to the doctor much at that time. So honestly, I think that like now, if I, I probably, if I went to the doctor, I would have found out like some not so good things at that time. Um, and I, I do advocate for going to the doctor, but I'm also grateful that I didn't go to the doctor at that time. And that I just started trying to change my life first before going to the doctor 
because I was able to just listen. I was able to see a transformation like pretty much almost immediately. Like when I started eating that way, I lost like 30 pounds in the first month, just like that. It was shocking to me. I was like, what, what? I mean, like what? Like I couldn't believe it. Um, so I think I was having a health scare then, except there was nobody telling me what, what exactly was happening, but I could feel that. Right. So I, I believe that, that the Korean grandmother that called me fat that day in H Mart was like sent to me. I feel that she was sent to me by God and, you know, or the universe or whatever people want to call. She was placed there. She was an alarm. She wasn't a she wasn't a mean person. She wasn't a, a loud alarm of me not listening because my body had been telling me I was in trouble. My mental health was in trouble. Everything was in trouble. And then this lady, I finally heard it when this lady was like, you're too fat. You know, it's like, no, no, no. I'd been getting a lot more warnings than that. That was just maybe the loudest one. Um, but my health changed immediately. And I don't have to tell it to you in terms of like even pounds or blood pressure or anything. Cause I never took any of that. I just felt better. My body functioned better. And, um, it led me to choices like going for a walk. I was getting so much energy from the food. I had to walk to, to use the energy, you know, even now, like I'm prompted to move from the food that I eat because it gives me so much energy that sitting down is like the last thing I want to do. I want to move. Um, so, and then, you know, postpartum, I found out that, you know, weight gain is not just because you ate burgers. Cause I wasn't eating like burgers then, but I gained weight from medicine and I had stuff happen in my body, um, after birth. And I ate that same food again and, um, it healed me again. And so I, you know, I, I would just say like, go towards plants, you know, because, they, they just carry like this high vibration and, and, um, and, and, and be calm enough to just sort of like, listen, because now I feel everything in my body. I feel it when, I, when something infects me or a cold or anything like that, which I don't get too many colds, but like, I feel it. I feel everything in my body now. Like it's so loud. Sometimes I tell my husband like, oh, la la, it's too loud almost, you know, like, I feel all the inner workings of my body now, like I never had before. Like if I had to get pregnant now, before I didn't know any, I couldn't feel anything. Now I feel my ovulation. I feel my cycle. I feel everything. I feel my body. I'm very connected to my body. I know right away before I'm even having symptoms of not feeling well, I'm like, oh, something's coming. I felt it enter me. You've spoken a lot about, you've spoken a lot about feeling healthy how yeah. much does anxiety take hold of someone generally speaking how how you know people sometimes i think underestimate what it means to be anxious they mm. you know how does that feel to be part of that kind of anxiety issue where you're surrounded with anxiety by anxiety Horrible. how does that affect it you it's, it feels horrible. You know, now that I had such debilitating anxiety, I realized that I had other little anxieties along the way, but not like that. 
I mean, my anxiety came from one, the medicine I was taking two, the fact that I was like, I went from hypothyroid to hyperthyroid. So I had some anxiety that came with the medical condition that I had. Um, and then also I had to advocate for myself as a, like a black woman in the health space to like tell people that there was something going wrong with me, like, and no one was really listening to me about what was happening in my body. I mean, I, I could cry just talking about that experience alone because even though like they kept trying to tell me it was anxiety and at the time it really wasn't any like big, great anxiety, but like the, the, the biggest anxiety came from having to advocate for myself as a black woman in the health space. Like, trying to tell people that like something is like going on with me. Like, okay, I, mean, let me, I literally had to let me, let me ask you something right there. Yeah. Does it mean that you don't feel like you're anxious? As far as you're concerned, you're just getting on with life. But everyone else or the doctors or wherever, whoever it is that said that you were suffering with anxiety, is that something that you diagnosed yourself or did you just feel, I'm getting yeah, on with at life? The end, I yeah, I'm so self-aware that like, I'm not embarrassed to say I'm anxious or whatever. So at the time when I was not anxious, I told them I'm not anxious. Like you have to understand, I'm not anxious. Now, at a certain point I did become anxious um, because of all of these elements that I've just, you know, mm -hmm. said to you. And then it was really bad. It was, man, I, 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 I'm so grateful I went through it because I've worked with people, but like, you don't know until you've really been in a deep anxiety what that is. I mean, I, I, I didn't go out of the house except to go to the emergency room. I was afraid. I was so afraid. My husband couldn't even like barely go to the grocery store for like five minutes. I, I thought that I was going to like die. I didn't sleep. I was I at the point. This is at the point where I'm like, OK, I definitely have anxiety and I knew it, too. Um, I wouldn't go to sleep because I was scared that if I went to sleep, I was going to die. I mean, you have no idea what that feels like. If you think that like when your eyes are closing, that they are, it's like your death. Mm -hmm. I was, it was, it was the most frightening thing. And so I didn't sleep and, and, and that caused all that wreaks all kinds of havoc, havoc on anxiety and everything else. Um, I was so afraid. I've never been so afraid in my life. I, I, I literally thought like I was going to die every second. I mean, okay, let me tell you how bad it is, okay? I became like almost allergic to everything, including water. Like everything, like anything I would take, I thought it was like, I was so wound up tight that like, I remember I, I thought I had like allergies or something and we my husband got me this, like everything would make my heart rate shoot up to like 180 at some points, right? Like I was so anxious like that. I So I took this like herbal pill and then my heart rate shot up and then I drank water and then my heart rate shot up. Like ev anything that I ate, anything that I ate to the, to the point where I had to go back on my re medical records and remove that I was like allergic to everything because I was having such a bad reaction to anything that entered my mouth. Can you imagine mm -hmm. water, drinking water yes. would make me, drinking water would make me like, I thought I was allergic to water. I thought I was allergic to everything. Like I had to go back and be like, okay, I'm not allergic to that. I'm not allergic to that. I'm not allergic to that. 
I'm not allergic to that because I, I was so anxious that anything that entered my body, my space, I was, except my children. My children were like the calming force of mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't even understand how I would get so calm around my children. It's almost like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Do yes. you know what I mean? Yeah, like yes. with people, my children, you would be like, wow, like this woman is like with her children, so good. And then when I wasn't engaging with my children, I was like, just like a mad woman. I lost my mind. So how did you overcome anxiety? Um, I, I went to therapy. I got a therapist. Um, I had to do it from home two times a week in the bathroom, crouched in the corner from for the first couple weeks. Ah. Uh, God, I'm like, it makes, I'm sorry. No, that's, that's, that's okay. I'm, I actually uh, spoke about that because, you know, a lot of people, they don't, they don't understand when you, you know, what that means. And I'm sorry yeah. to, have, to have brought you back no. there. I really am. That's not, no, that no, was no. not. It's good. It's good. I mean, this book has been so good. Um, I just, well, well, I'll tell you. Te I was, well, tell us. I was so, I was so, I was so scared, but you know what? Like, I, the one thing that I did, I was like, I'm going to do this therapy, you know, and I would, I would be sitting in my bathroom and I would be so afraid. I was so afraid. And the therapist was a magician. I mean, he had the therapist from this thing that I found online, they had all been through debilitating anxiety and come out of it without medicine. So he really knew how I felt, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was like magic to hear somebody actually know how I feel because anyone that like has had anxiety can tell you that like people kind of like, will be like, you know, go on, like chin up, you can do it, you know, get up. But to hear somebody like express what I was feeling made me feel like very close to him and trust him. And he really just spoke to me in such an amazing way and gave me such amazing tools. Like I had one tool where he would like tell me, how, like taught me how to like put everything that I was worried about into like a visual box in my mind and leave it for the morning. And I literally like, uh, I would be sobbing at the first sessions, just so afraid, like, please help me, help me. I just kept telling him, please help me, help me, help me. I just don't, I don't, I don't want to feel like this anymore. It was so bad. Well, and you've, you've done it now because yeah. now you have the Korean, um, but it was the Korean well, part of I your, started, your, your I, medicine kind of to, did it help you? Well, what really helped me the most was like, besides the therapist was I started watching, um, Marja von Richten who wrote my forward. Mangchi, I started watching all these Korean chefs and I started using them kind of like how I had the grandmother. And I started watching these videos and I started to make Korean food more regularly again, because I had gotten to a point where I was like really in a bad space. And I started like by like eating Korean food again. And then I started making Korean food again. And as I was eating like more Korean food and these ingredients were like affecting my body again, they literally, I feel like affected my physical chemistry. 
I don't know if it's through my gut or what bacteria were in my gut that 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 caused anxiety and depression, but Korean food really was the cure and balanced me like chemically as well, I feel like. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there literally was like a feeling. I made this soup that Marja made on her show, this like seafood soup. And literally, like as I ate it, I started to feel calm from the food. That's amazing. From the food. Yeah. From the food. I started to eat, make kimchi again. And I was eating the kimchi and it literally calmed me down. The food literally calmed me down. And so I dove deeper than I ever did before. And now with like, I Instagram and all these things where I could like watch things and watch people doing stuff. And I was watching this one chef, Chris Cho, who's now actually very popular on, on Instagram, but he was just kind of like this small chef from Philly at the time. I was watching Chris Cho, I was watching Mangchi and I started eating and eating and eating. I ended up going to Korea and like uh, literally embracing Korean culture deeply again, transformed my health. There's something very magic about the ingredients in Korean food. Like I literally feel like it was like, like anxiety medicine. Wow, that's just amazing. Africa, how does the metaphor embracing culture leads to a wonderful life reflect your life? Well, for me, I've had some health issues um, and obesity that I faced in my life. Embracing culture and embracing Korean culture for me led me to a long list of healthful choices that I made that helped me to transform my mental health, um, my body health, and um, and 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 lead me to a, a body and and health transformation. But what I really believe is that when we are faced with the unknown, we if we embrace culture, if we look outside of ourselves to another culture, we can be led down a path that gives us answers that not only can transform ourselves, but I believe can transform the world. Thank you. That's a really nice way of putting it together. And how can we find your book? If you're looking to find my book, you can go to thekoreanbook.com, spelt as said, thekoreanbook.com. And once it goes on pre-order, there will be links for you to buy the books all over the world, UK, US, Asia, um, there at the website. Great. Well, Africa, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I've uh, learned so much and your story is not just an interesting one, but a, a very inspiring one. And I wish you the best with your book and also with your, your life, with your husband and uh, yes. all the best in happiness. <laughs> okay. Thank you so, so much for having me on. And definitely everybody should go to the koreanbook.com. What a fantastic guest. She's certainly proved how embracing culture can both change and improve your life. 
Now let's get back to our topic of the week and see how refugee culture has become entwined with the mainstream. The arrival of refugees to the UK has a history that stretches further back than you may expect, with Norfolk being a place which illustrates this remarkable history. Did you know that the county of Norfolk is as close to the Netherlands as it is to London? Back in medieval England, it would have taken you a single day to sail to Amsterdam, but four days to travel to London. Even now, flights to Norwich, to Schiphol Airport, are quicker than trains are from Norwich to England's capital. It was in the 1300s when the English first invited the Flemings over to escape the French rulers during the Hundred Years' War. Several hundred years later, in the 1560s, hundreds of Dutch people were asked to revolutionise the cloth industry in England. Queen Elizabeth I endeavoured to solve a labour issue in the country and used a group of people fleeing religious persecution to do so. The word stranger was originally used in the 16th century to refer to the Dutch and French-speaking families from the Low Countries, the areas we would now think of as Holland and Belgium. In Norwich, the mayor, Thomas Southerton, wrote a letter explaining the reasons for inviting 30 families to settle in the city. The letter explains that many of the city's residents were moving into the countryside, owing to a lack of work in spinning, weaving and dyeing, whilst at the same time many of the Protestant inhabitants of the Low Countries were seeking refuge as a result of persecutions under the Duke of Alba, who acted as governor on behalf of the King of Spain. Even now you can see how the Dutch left their mark on the area, not only influencing historical agriculture, but their introduction of canary birds led to the nicknaming of Norwich FC. On average, about 11 million people apply for asylum every year. With numbers that high, it's only logical that this unique populace has entered mainstream culture. Adit Akech is a Sudanese-Australian model who has taken the fashion industry by storm since her debut in 2017, being one of the first black women to lead a perfume campaign. She was also crowned Model of the Year by the British Fashion Council in 2019. Akesh is working hard to not only bring awareness to refugees like her, but is also improving diversity within the fashion industry with her newfound fame. Here's a snippet of Akesh speaking in a talk she put together titled, I'll Always Be a Refugee. So now, <laughs> we're going to get into Why will you this. always be a refugee? Why will I always... I will always be a refugee because that's who I am. Um, like I've mentioned before, no matter, you know, no amount of money or my status or how famous or whatever the case is, I'm always going to be a refugee and I am proud of who I am and, you know... That's why I always say I'm always going to be a refugee. That's being a refugee, I guess. I don't know, like I said. Does, it's does that mean you feel like you belong nowhere? Or do, or do you feel I, feel... I feel like I belong everywhere, really. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, that's the answer. I do. I feel like anywhere in the world is a home for me, and I belong. 
If you're more into music rather than fashion, then there's no doubt that you've come across the smooth but poignant work from the band Fugees, their name being a shortened version of the word refugees, a term which was often used derogatorily to describe the Haitian population in America. Band members Wyclef Jean and Pras Michel settled on this name, drawing reference from their own background. They felt it especially suited as their own music became a refuge to them from the world around them. There are plenty more artists, scientists and even leaders who can attribute themselves to this particular grouping. There's no doubt that people who have traveled seeking protection have brought with them fragments of what they've left behind. Sharing this with the world, their talents and skills, has quite often been a blessing. We hope you've learned something new with today's metaphor, or at least taken some inspiration from Africa to go out and try something new. Thanks for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Metaphorically Speaking. Don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at colorful.com forward slash shows forward slash Delia. And we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorful.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify, and all major streaming platforms. Please help us to grow. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Until next week, goodbye. Thanks for listening to Metaphorically Speaking, created by Delia Delore Productions, with original distribution by Colourful. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and had segments written by Sabina Lauchopra Garcia. Production assistance and social media graphics by Odua Osamwenke. The final programme was edited by Jonathan Woods and social media videos by Ernie Deneve.